0: Attention, please. Please, please, please. Presenting a new exciting
1: radio program. Hello, I'm Stephen Coates. I'm sitting here in the dusty bureau of lost culture, fiddling with the dials of my old radio receiver in search of more half remembered, half lost, forgotten. Now, a frequent theme on this show is the way that the counterculture becomes the culture, the way that the underground becomes the mainstream. As Mahatma Gandhi is reputed to have said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they resist you, then you win. And while it might be regrettable, the way that the advertising and fashion industries often eat the work of innovators often without giving them reward or recognition in the pursuit of credibility in the youth market it's a necessary thing that the culture gets refreshed by the counterculture look at our subject today pirate radio it's the second in a trilogy dedicated to illicit broadcasting and the hijacking of the airwaves for the love of music Last time, we set sail in search of the offshore pirates of the 60s and 70s, who were feeding the appetite of young groovers for pop and rock music in the 1960s and 70s from boats out at sea. This time, we're gonna climb a tower block on the trail of the urban pirates and one inner city station in particular that is now a household name. But before we come to that, I'd like to invite you to join us at bureauoflostculture.com where you can check out our hidden attic full of treasures and you can sign up and join us. And if you like, you can support us in our wild endeavours. Right, my guest today is returning to the Bureau, one half of Cold Cut, and co-founder of the mighty Ninja Tune Record Empire. Some would say he needs a little introduction, but if he does... It says here that he's a veteran of 80s soul weekenders and warehouse parties such as flim flam he was harvesting crates for their wares while most other djs were still at school he also helped set up the pirate radio station kiss fm with gordon mac that's what we're going to be talking about today before teaming up with matt black to form cold Cut. authors of the long-running solid steel mix show along with a million other things he is of course Jonathan Moore, and DJ Food has very kindly donated some jingles from Solid Steel, which we can pepper this episode with. John is still a regular digger, both at home and abroad. Apparently, he has a sixth sense for sniffing out vinyl in any given town, and has been known to arrive at car boot sales before dawn, armed with a torch. Is that true, John?
2: Absolutely true. Hello. Yes, it is. It's absolutely true. I mean, these days my digging has turned to all kinds of weird stuff, but back in the day it was predominantly vinyl and predominantly seven inches actually. And yeah, I just rock up at a place and sit for hours going through stuff and
1: listening to things and what have you. Well, listen, first of all, welcome back to the Bureau of Lost Culture. Thank you. Now, John, I know you've got an epic vinyl collection, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But as you mentioned it then, um, what else do you collect at these car boot sales? Uh,
2: um, well, i got a penchant for atomic nuclear power memorabilia. So I've got quite a lot of, like, Sellafield. I've got the plans to Sellafield, which are beautiful, <laughs> actually. I've got, like, plates with other nuclear power stations on. I've got... Um mugs, things that you put on the table to protect the table that come from a variety of different power stations. I've got a whole heap of postcards. And I mean I could go on there's a lot of obscure stuff.
1: <laughs> well, so it's it's nuclear power rather than nuclear weapons related ephemera
2: anti-nuclear weapon stuff as well because in the Mm. 80s i got very involved in cnd
1: yeah
2: and i used to go all over the place went to russia went to holland marching and i've got posters and badges from that but no it's postcards of like Sellafield and windscale and various other different atomic power stations and also i collect postcards of brutalist and modernist and municipal architecture as well so like terrible
1: tower blocks and flats and stuff like that that's very pirate radio but uh but what, what, what about the nuclear thing what do you think is behind that
2: it used to fascinate me that here were these in the 50s you know when it kicked off here were these supposedly secret places where all this stuff went on and it was all a bit hush hush and stuff yet you could go and buy a tux postcard with a really nice photograph <laughs> of said place you know and I just I don't know and it just fascinates me I suppose because I grew up in the era of the Cold War and the atomic bomb and CND and When the Wind Blows and I actually played the launch party of When the Wind Blows down in a um, atomic nuclear kind of um, bunker in central London in Tottenham Court
1: Road. Right. uh, When the Wind Blows is the for anybody who doesn't know is the graphic novel and then later animated film of what happens to a couple in a sort of post-nuclear Britain. And uh, we can talk more about the disease of collecting later. But in terms of vinyl, um, are you still at it? Are you still, are you still collecting? Um,
2: I, I, Yeah, I just, I like going out to the boot fairs, really, and I like digging. And I do most this, that's mostly what I do. You know, if I want to buy, like, a record and I want it now... I, you know, I'm in a very privileged position of just usually being able to go on Discogs and buy it. I mean, obviously some of them are stupid and I don't, I'm not, I don't mind sometimes not having the original. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's on a seven inch, I'm happy one way or another, if it's modern or not. But I just love the boot fair and I love punching and I love that side of things.
1: We're going to wind towards your involvement with Pirate Radio, John, but just going right back Do you remember when that sort of passion for vinyl and for collecting and, you know, crate digging started?
2: I can trace it back to my grandfather and my uncle, I think. So my grandfather in his house used to have this sort of upstairs room, which was full of ancient toys, including a kind of rocking horse and moth-eaten teddy bears and things like that. But there was a 78 record player and a bunch of records, of which some were children's records, and some of those were kind of novelty records, I suppose. And one in particular had, I can't remember, maybe four or five different songs, depending where you put the needle down, all cut to the same side. So I used to love going up there and playing. And then, you know, I started buying vinyl. Weirdly enough, I lived in this little village called Tame, and the vinyl shop as as it was, it wasn't really a vinyl shop, but it was the coal merchant. And and he was a bit of fan of rock music and particularly psychedelic rock music, weirdly enough. And so in there, he used to have like Jimi Hendrix LPs and stuff like that, which you could also buy after you'd bought your bag of coal. So I used to buy seven inches from him. I got very jealous once because he had a standing order with some famous person that lived in a village nearby who bought the top ten every week. (laughs) And uh, uh, that was it. And then my uncle lived in Lagos in Nigeria, and mm-hmm. he knew that I liked records. And he started selling me weird like Nigerian High Life records on, on Decca and beautiful sort of things from out of nowhere, just incredible music. So that, I think that kicked it off. That combined with my mad collecting thing,
1: and you've, you know, you've had a whole life uh, involved with vinyl, um, but what was the journey from that kid to, you know, working in it Reckless Records, I think, wasn't it, in the 80s?
2: I went to art college, then I did some teacher training and I did some teaching and I kind of enjoyed it, but I didn't really enjoy the system very much and the politics of it. So I started doing part-time stuff and teaching part-time or being a supply teacher so I used to do a couple of days a week at records. I just went in there and asked for a job and I got one I actually probably didn't earn any money as such I just got paid in records <laughs> which was rather nice but I mean, it was a center and you know loads of people came in and out and that's where I got to know all of the London DJs basically who formed you know a lot of them formed the basis of Kiss FM as it right. would become so I was DJing at warehouse parties. I used to do this, the meltdown. That was the first one, which was in Rotherhigh Street, 99 Rotherhigh Street in an old theatre, which had been a GLC, Greater London Council Theatre. And then when Thatcher came in, typical of the tourists, they slash and burn, but they don't quite often figure out what they've actually got. So this theatre that had been owned by the GLC and was, you know, space that you can rent and stuff suddenly became sort of nobodies as such. So we, we just like, fuck it, okay. So we just put on loads of clubs and nights there. With um, It was a lot
1: of fun. But I mean, what year was that then? So 84, 85. Right, so quite early on uh, for the warehouse parties. But, and what was the culture in London that sort of, you know, brought you to that?
2: Well, I used to go to various places like Kensington High Street and you go to like Kensington Market where Jay Strongman, for example, had a store what was it called rockers or something i can't remember well, you could go and buy like flappy leg trousers and james dean style jackets and that sort of thing and there'd be flyers for clubs and stuff and it was fascinating and you know they would say sometimes the kind of music and so i started going to some of those i fell into DJing just because i by accident really at college we discovered that we could use some money from that union to put on passes and I got irritated with other people kind of winding through cassettes going I know that (laughs) opportunity is somewhere so I had a suitcase and, and a record player and I just took over and did it and then soon people started asking me and then I started doing the warehouse parties alongside a lot of other people like Jay and Rob Day and you know the dirt box was one of the best early ones and so i thought well okay i've got this space let's do it so we put on a party once a month and um it was actually on the way to that club i was late and opened at midnight and i was running a bit late getting stuff set up and what have you and i took a cab from where i lived in crystal palace to rotherhive and the cab driver was gordon mack (laughs) And he asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm just going to where I spy. I'm teaching now. And he was like, oh, okay, fine. So we had a long (laughs) chat and he said, oh, I'm I'm working on Kiss. And I was like, oh, that's funny. Because I knew this guy, Nicky Holloway. And Nicky Holloway has been really successful at promoting and stuff. And he'd said to me, oh, I'm going to give up my show on Kiss because I'm just too busy. So Gordon said, you know, we might have a space. Don't really know. You know, why don't you make a demo tape? And so I went to the club (laughs) did the sets, did the night, got home about four o'clock in the morning and then recorded a two-hour <laughs> show. And I took it round to his house because he lived not far from where I was living at the time and put it through the letterbox with a message saying, I met you in the cab last night, you said about a radio show, here it is. I made it this morning.
1: <laughs> you were keen. Um, but before we before we get into that, into KISS and your involvement there, um, obviously massive into vinyl and DJing, but was um, was radio an important thing for you too then?
2: Yeah, radio was absolutely 100% important. There was Charlie Gillett, who was actually on Capital Radio, who's passed away sadly. He was just the most amazing DJ and went across the board and was incredibly knowledgeable. And so he was very influential, but he was one of the little beacons of light on legal radio at the time. There were, you know, Rodigan was occasionally on. um, There were a few others. But it was mainly the pirates where you could hear the, Interesting music. So there's um you know Dread Broadcasting Company, for example, really influential. I love them, DBC as they were called, or Rebel Radio, 93.9 FM. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, what else the horizon, you know, which is a bit more kind of um soul boy fringe all that sort of stuff, but it's still lots of good Soul Over London. I think they their kind of strap line was. What else was there? Quite a lot, you know. There was LWR, London Weekend Radio, and um JFM. So a lot of those stations were the staple like the early days. So you know, you got obviously the 1960s seafaring pirate mm. stations, Radio calorine etc. etc. Jackie. And they were more about playing pop music because the 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 stations here were playing like light orchestra and shit like your mum and dad liked and not some dirty rock and roll record or some psychedelic piece from America. So you got that. And then Dread Broadcasting, Horizon, LWR, JFM, Solo, that was another one. They were only place that you could hear the whole variety of black music, really. Everything from funk all the way through disco, jazz, Latin, you know, and then as the music progressed... You could hear the electro and house music, and it wasn't anywhere else to be heard, really,
1: on mainstream yeah. radio. Yeah. I mean, it's this, it was so, it's a parallel thing to what had happened earlier. You know, we covered the offshore pirates, you know, in the 60s and early 70s, and, you know, then they didn't need to exist anymore, really, or they went legal. Um, and be, but they sort of forced this change, really, because young people wanted to listen to rock and pop, which they weren't getting, and say, on the BBC. Um, and then after they got legal, but then this this sort of second generation of pirates, uh, maybe they overlapped a bit, I don't know. But again, playing these more niche, underground, ignored uh, sections of music that were just not getting any mainstream airplay, right? I mean, so it must have been great fun to hear them that way.
2: Yeah, it was really exciting. A lot of them were just weekend based. Because, you know, even for Kiss in the early days, we tried to do it seven days a week and it was just too hard work. And you know, the risk obviously was was significantly higher if you broadcast every day rather than just three days over the weekend. And you know, it was tied in with club promotion. So that was a good way because there was no other way of getting your stuff promoted necessarily sometimes. And say so it catered for black music in general. There were other stations. There was Network Twenty One, which was a kind of I suppose, a resonance, really, Hmm. stuff station. I did a show on there, and it was the only radio station that was cool with me playing the whole of music for 18 musicians by Steve Wright.
1: (laughs) That is quite niche. Um, So you were, you you know, you were enjoying a kind of diet of the sounds that you wanted to hear by a pirate, and uh, let's go let's talk about Gordon Mack and and Kiss then. And um, he was already doing that, or Kiss was already playing, and you were listening to it. So tell us about how that all got started.
2: Well, I think what had happened is just com- the stations we've just talked about. The government again, they realised that there was something going on here, and it was costing them significantly trying to police it and close it down and also the technology was getting cleverer so it was getting more difficult to keep up with the pirates so they started what they termed the uh, kind of community radio i suppose and so quite a lot of these stations came off air to apply for licenses because they had to do that so one of those stations was greek community
0: radio right, so
1: not necessarily music based but broadcasting all sorts of stuff music and other cultural stuff for the Greek community in London
0: Yasoucadia yes, okay, Yasouyanaki yes, yeah, Πω πω, τι όμορφιες είναι αυτές, μωρέ, έχεις γίνει σωστή κούκλα. Σου αρέσει, μόλις γύρισα από το κομμωτήριο του Μάικου. Του Μάικου. Ναι, δεν έχεις ακούσει για τα unisex κομμωτήρια του Μάικου. Υπάρχει ένα στο 466, Bowes Road, New Southgate, London, North Eleven. Τηλέφωνο, 368 1450, 368 42 85, μεσούνα, massage, facial makeup, ear piercing, waxing, μόνο για γυναίκες. Επίσης υπάρχουν άλλα δύο κομμωτήρια στο 19 Woom Lane Wilson Green London Northwest 2 τηλέφωνο 459 1676 και 15 Crouch Hill London North 4 τηλέφωνο 272 272-0636 για μια ολοκληρωτική αλλαγή στην εμφάνισή σας, άνδρες και γυναίκες. Βρε Γιάννη, να πας και εσύ να κάνεις τα μαλλιά σου. Πώς το είπες, Michael Unisex Salon. Ναι, Michael's Unisex Salon.
2: And the guy behind it, his first name is George, I think. He, George Powers, that's right, George Powers. So George Powers had spare time then. And so he was one of the people, along with um, Gordon Mack and Tosca as well, was another guy who started the early KISS. So a lot of those stations that went off air, it left a space for KISS, basically. And so also, you know, it... Some of those DJs who'd been on those stations, I think like Tim Westwood, for example, moved and got shows on KISS. So, you know, like any ecosystem, some big trees were chopped down and lots of little things burst up and grew, you know, and KISS was one of them.
1: Here is a sidebar. This is the story of somebody called Eric, whose job was to track down pirates and remove the transmitters. And this is a report about a raid on Kiss FM in October 1985 when he was successful. It's from the site amfm.org.uk. If you live in southeast London, you may remember a large traffic holdup on the A2 near the centre of town back at the beginning of October. It was large enough to get on Capital, LBC and Radio London, being reported as blocking one lane of the road. (laughs) Want to know who caused it? KISS FM had its FM transmitter, located on a building along the A2, strapped to the outside of a chimney along with its aerials. The roof was fairly steep, making it impossible to get at the transmitter without using specialist ladders and boards. Eric had spent the afternoon tracking the transmitter in the usual way before finally spotting it on the chimney it decided it was too dangerous to climb onto the roof and get it so chose instead to call in the fire brigade they arrived first in a control vehicle to see what was needed before calling in a fire engine with a mechanical lift and a rotating turntable by now the evening rush hour was beginning to approach to get at kitty's transmitter which was still operating the fire engine had to park on the edge of the main A2. And if you've ever seen the size of those machines, you'll know what sort of hold up they can cause. Eric got into the bucket along with the fireman, and up they went to the transmitter. With great difficulty, they managed to disconnect it, then remove the aerial and descend. Meanwhile, a small crowd had gathered down below, wondering what on earth was going on. Cars that were passing slowed down to watch the action, causing even greater delays than there already were and bringing the police in to deal with the hold-up. But even when Eric had gone, transmitter in hand, the traffic was still delayed for much of the evening. So next time you're stuck in traffic jam, it might just be Eric and co removing a transmitter. And if the station you're listening to suddenly disappears, then it probably is.
0: Strange music. It didn't begin, didn't end, it just went on and on. You are listening to code.k and
2: I think what was really clever about KISS was the the engineer, Piers Easton, and he was a very clever man. And he invented this um, microwave link so that the DTI couldn't what they called triangulate so they couldn't work out where the single was coming from so they couldn't raid the station and take it off The,
1: the DTI is the Department of Trade and Industry and they were the sort of government body that was policing this policing the airwaves and would close pirates down if they could locate where they were broadcasting from correct yeah the studio wouldn't be at the same place as the transmitter you'd send the signal from the studio to the transmitter so that they could take down your transmitter but they wouldn't necessarily know where you were doing it from so you wouldn't get caught yourself right
2: yeah thing you didn't want to lose your music basically, you because they had the right to confiscate all your records and all the studio equipment and so that transmitter is easy to rebuild you know and fairly not cheap but you know fairly cheap compared to losing a whole Turntables, all the rest of the kit, and your records. So that's um, you know, it was that that really um, sealed the success in many respects.
1: So he worked out a way of actually, he said using a microwave, was it? I mean, to to so that they could they couldn't even find the transmitter some of the time. Is that right?
2: Correct. Yeah. It also protected you from other, other pirate stations as well, because there were some that you know would quite happily come and steal your your kit and you know pirate by name pirate by nature it was it was a free-for-all and that was in some respects the dti did have some grounds for some of the issues that they were focused on
1: i suppose their case would be that you're unlicensed though you know it's you we can't control actually the content but also you're taking up a bit of the airwaves which might be used the emergency services or something right but you're broadcasting on your Particular uh, band and other pirates would they also be trying to get in on that band or was it just more a case of if we if we find your gear and where you are we're going to steal it I mean it does sound quite piratical I mean it, right yeah, I mean they
2: would kind of try and get a, sometimes they go for a, like a stronger signal and try and um, you know shit all over your broadcast if they could that was the way I mean it wasn't horrendous it wasn't guns at dawn and all that shit but there was definitely some shenanigans going on because you know it was imp-
1: it, that was it it was the wild west for you for gordon mack for george from greek community radio what was the impetus was it the love of music was it the desire to just sort of be interacting with the community and be be anti-establishment and providing something which the 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 conventional culture wasn't providing, what was the motivation behind it?
2: I think it was just, I mean, it sounds corny, but it was just to play music that we loved that we didn't hear anywhere else, you know? And obviously there was other issues, for example, if you could, via the, the medium of pirate radio, become legal, like Kiss did, you know, that's a significant business success. Potentially, and you know, as you it has been for Kiss,
1: so it was the excitement of that. I've been able to play out the music that you loved that you know you'd found and um to sort of share that out with a community of people who were digging it as well.
2: Yeah, I you know, you didn't actually know when you're broadcasting whether anybody was listening or not, <laughs> but you know, you just hope that they were, and actually, it eventually we realized they were because Gordon, um. You know, started getting letters, we started getting letters and we were like, oh, well, you know, we got a letter or two. And then we looked up like how many letters say Radio One got and we realized that we were getting a, a good chunk of stuff, more than some of the radio BBC stations at the time. And then when we did gigs, so you know, the significant number of people came. In fact it got a bit dodgy at, towards the sort of end before Kiss came off air too many people turning up to too small a venue. Well,
1: listen, let me take you back to that morning when you'd put your mixtape through Gordon Mack's letterbox and obviously he played it and then got back to you and said, you're in. And then what was your first day at Kiss like then? I mean, can you remember it?
2: At that point, it was in the Woolworth Road. And so it was in the basement of a decorating shop that was open, like, I think kind of, well it it just sold everything basically this shop and i think it was a relative of gordon's or something and so they built a studio room and hidden it in the basement of this um place in the Woolworth road and because people were going in there 24 7 to buy stuff it didn't look suspicious with people turning up to do shows and stuff it was tiny the space was literally the size of one person plus the turntables in depth and it had like a kind of secret door thing. And you had to be really careful when you went. And you had to make sure people weren't following you and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> and, you know, that did add to the excitement. So that was the first place. And then for a while, Manassa, who were on KISS, who fantastic reggae DJs, they had, uh, I think it was in somewhere like Shooters Hill or something, they had a flat. And they had the top floor flat there. And we did it out of there. And then Crystal Palace, we did it from Crystal Palace, and that I think that that was possibly the final one before we came off there and went legal.
1: So and where were the transmitters? I mean, you got the guy Piers, who'd come up with this microwave system, so you you'd, probably you weren't getting taken down as often as other uh, pirate stations, but where, where were the actual broadcasting from?
2: We were never told in case we were tortured by the deep. <laughs> <laughs> So you better not to know.
1: Boy, better not know. <laughs> so, I mean, if they did uh, catch uh, somebody, what did they do? I mean, they, 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 I suppose for you, as you mentioned earlier, the worst possible thing would have been if the, uh, your, you know, your uh, your music had been confiscated. Right? I mean, you, you lose you lose a transmitter or a piece of kit. That's one thing. But losing your record collection would be horrendous, right?
2: Yeah, they knew that was carefully targeted. I, you know, I think there was like, ridic- I mean, I, maybe I'm misremembering this, but five grand fines springs to mind and potentially five years in prison and stuff like that. So, you know, it could have been quite serious, but, you know, w- w- they could see that we were getting a lot of, love and attention
1: so it would have been it would have been an unpopular arrest wouldn't it as well and bang, banging somebody up for playing music that people love is um sensible at like soviet union yeah. yeah and they started to realize like all governments
2: do and particularly Tory governments that there was some money to be made there in this emerging market so you know let's try and get in there and 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 apportion it up and having maintained as you said for a long time that pirate radios interfered with the um, ambulance service band and the police service band, all of a sudden this extra capacity was made available for a price and you had to bid on it. So, you know, that was a, in the 1990s. That was the last. I don't think there's been any legislation since then. we the the yeah.
0: 40 days
2: to go and KISS is going up there looking for legalisation. So, don't forget to support us, KISS94FM, and we'll be back loud and loud and legal. music won't change. The attitude won't change.
1: In how long you, were you there for before you came off air to make that first attempt to go legal?
2: 86 to 1990, so four years pretty much, I'd So I was on there for about a year before Matt Black, my partner in crime at Ninja & Colcut joined, and that was because of DJ Bob Jones. There was a spare show. Matt got his own show. And then Matt and I joined together and did just the cold cut show.
1: So you met at the record store, didn't you? Yeah,
2: I met Matt. He came in to Reckless with um, looking to buy some records. And, you know, he'd got this demo that he'd made of, say, kids as it was mm. at the time. And so, yeah, I put it on, listened to it, and it's was like, yeah, that's, this is working.
1: So we got together and started making noise. Well, you know, Kiss. It went legal it's had a it's very successful sort of broadcasting empire isn't it uh now very different but then those pirate times must have been quite exciting then i mean what time was your show and uh, give us a give us a sort of uh, picture of of what your routine was when you went in there and how it worked well my show when i was
2: doing the meltdown party was on a saturday afternoon from three till five i think and i so i was on after norman jay just great just go buy loads of records during the week and then just rock up with a bag of stuff and play it and that was it you know and it was a lot of fun and um, then we start we had meetings with all the DJs as well which was great fun so it's a very multicultural broad range of blokes mainly but some women but you know that, that has changed as well but it was great you know lots everything from uh, uh, um, you know, working class all the way through to a lord. Who is the lord? He probably wouldn't be happy with me divulging that he's a lord, but he was absolutely one of those old-school radio DJs who's got the most beautiful radio voice. And he is aristocracy, but he gave it up to buy music and he's completely, like, fanatic about soul music and stuff. From, you know, his 60s. He'd been broadcasting for years, but he had a spot on
1: Kiss, and he was just wonderful. <laughs> the Lord Who Became a Pirate, that's a great story. Um, but just like the offshore pirates, a lot of DJs and broadcasters who went on to, you know, be, you know, mainstream and big successes, actually, started off in the pirate, pirate world. And it was the same for you guys, wasn't it, really, actually? I mean, you know, there's a lot of the people, Trevor Nelson, Norman Jay, you know, you and Matt, Danny, Danny Rampling, you know, uh, all these people started off in the pirate world. No, no
2: it's fascinating. Interesting fact, Danny Rampling passed the ceiling of my first flat. Anyway. <laughs> Have you reminded him of that? But I'm very tempted to see these <laughs> days. I <laughs> mean,
1: um, you know, we were talking earlier about this theme of the culture being continually refreshed, being dependent in a way on the counterculture. And, you know, pirate radio was or is maybe the counterculture of broadcasting, right? But but in terms of the mainstream musical culture, it had a massive effect, right? Because those genres that you were talking about um, that you just could not hear on the mainstream broadcasters, um, particularly maybe electronic music, you know, you might only hear it at parties um, and those illegal raves and stuff. And it gave a voice to it, which had a huge impact, right? Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean, we wouldn't have had our hits, I don't think, with, for example, Doctoring the House if it wasn't for Pirate Radio. Particularly actually up north, because, you know, I we I knew at the time, I can't remember the name of the, but there was several really good stations in Sheffield, for example, And, you know, it got played a lot there and Manchester and various other places. And so, you know, that whole dance music, Bomb the Bass, us, S-Express, Soul to Soul, all of those people, you know, the pirate stations, that was essential to our careers. It wouldn't have I you know, it wouldn't have happened in the way that it coalesced without Kiss as a sort of focus point for that really. How did
1: you be in community with those other stations? I mean, how did it work? You knew each other through because you did met at live events and parties and stuff, was that how it worked? Oh, you just meet or you'd meet at the record shop, mm-hmm. you know
2: and at parties at other places so you just knew a lot of people really uh, uh, you know on the scene as it were
1: you mentioned earlier getting letters because of course you know uh, it was pre-internet in fact i guess it was pre-mobile phone wasn't it at the beginning as well so you're getting feedback from the listeners from the people who are tuning in via letter that's amazing that is old school isn't it
2: yeah, postcards, lots of postcards. I've still got some somewhere stashed in, a, in our storage. And we used to get a lot of letters from prisoners, you know, because they were allowed to listen to the radio. And so it was an escape for them. So, And we used to do sometimes, Matt and I, we do these two-hour shows where we'd persuade, even though it was a part, there were still adverts, you know, for various different raves and nights and what have you and dreadful beers and things like that. <laughs> hair products and a real range of stuff it's such a wonderful sort of slice of life really if you go back and listen to this Hello
0: Shell, what do you want to do tonight? I don't know nothing on TV worth watching how's about getting a video and watching that yeah, but we ain't got nothing to watch. Don't matter, I'll pop down to the video box and get a film. Yeah, but won't it be closed by now? No, they're open six days a week till 8.30 and 6 o'clock on Sundays. All right, then where is it? It's at 384 Kings High Road, Dawson E8. You know, just opposite the Rice and Peas. What, 384 Kings and High Road, Dawson E8? Is the membership free? Yeah, videos for £1.00.
2: <laughs> it's weird in retrospect that. You know, I'm really nostalgic about it. At the time, it was just that was it. That was it was an ad for something that you knew was yeah, going on. I
1: was very interested by this thing about prisoners writing to you. What were they? What were they saying? What were they asking for?
2: They loved the fact. Well, actually, what I was saying is we used to do these shows without ads occasionally, so we could get a two-hour show, and Gordon would shift the ads into somebody else's show, and so we could just to- do what we used to call a swing alien sphinx. So we just do two hours, no talking, loads of weird noises. I mean, pretty stoned off-your-box kind of stuff, you know, smoke some weed and make some noise with effects and records and stuff. And so, you know, we'd prepare mixes in our studio and what have you. And I think it for that for those people who were locked in a little room, it was two hours of escape. Right right. into a completely bonkers world. So,
1: what about the economy of it? Obviously, it's powered by love, love of music, and the the whole the whole energy of being in part of that underground scene. But was there an economy? I mean, you you ran ads. ads, You had to run sort of odd ads for hair products and the stuff in the middle of your set.
2: Yeah, you know, it was like any other business really, you you know, it was finding its feet and charging and finding its place in the market, so to speak. And so actually none of the DJs were paid when it started and 10 of us put a £100 in to help it go and we we were like the founder not the founders but the founders of that sort of stage when it went when it started to step up and get more serious so you know i was actually a shareholder in kiss fm which was like nice but in the end it did pay some dividends um before it all got went commercial and what have you and part of unknowingly we did something that was actually quite clever At the time we wanted to protect the station against sort of being playlisted in when you set up a company you can have these things called the articles of association and to change those is quite difficult and you have to have loads of Business bollocks to be able to do that. And so, in that, we enshrined the idea that the playlist could only be during the daytime and not in the evening. So, from 7- 7 <laughs> p.m. in the evening to 7 a.m. in the morning, the station could never be playlisted and it could only be playlisted from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. And when investors started coming in, so uh, Chrysalis invested money. EMAP, as they were called then, who were another big publishing company invested. None of them could force on us for quite a long time a change to the programming because of what they needed our agreement as the, as the shareholders of the company, even though they own shares, even though our shares were minuscule, it meant without our agreement, they couldn't do that. Eventually they had to offer us some money to, to give in and we could see what was happening. You know, it would, it would eventually become what it has become, which is a commercial playlisted radio station. Right. Right. Um, Um, but we managed through virtue of trying to protect, the um the play the what music was played on the station we actually increased the value of our share significantly
1: <laughs> sort of uh, guerrilla capitalism <laughs> yeah um uh, how did you feel about it going you know first of all going legitimate you know the year off air or whatever it was and then getting the license and you know that must have been exciting and as well as a bit odd as well was it for you
2: yeah it was i mean it was amazing that we actually managed to get there and get a license and there was quite a lot of craziness behind the scenes that led to that really so for example um a few of us would go to the friends meeting house near the houses of parliament and meet various mps and lobby them about you know because we knew that that was a way to to get influence so i met a, a peculiar range of rather unsavoury Tories and um, rather beery, smoke-smelling Labour people and some wishy-washy liberals and <laughs> And we just ranted on at them about how brilliant it would be if, you know, there'd be lots of money to be made, it would be really good for the economy and blah, 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 mm. keep young people off the streets, la, 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 la. So we did a load of that and also... The Evening Standard ran a competition every year to vote for various things in London. And one of those years, it was favourite radio station, and they hadn't Mm. obviously figured that Pirate might figure in this. So when we found out, um, we just went out and bought, I think we bought like 800 copies of The Evening Standard (laughs) to pay for it in those days, and we all filled it in. And there was no like... So we put it in and we won, <laughs> and so we got voted the best pirate, best radio station in London. And so when we came to get go for the license, it was like, look, the standard things are okay, and all these people have written in to say,
1: <laughs> but you know, pirates, poachers, turn gamekeeper. Um, you and Matt carry on there, right? And you know, then of course you things start to take off for you, didn't they? In a, you know big big time and then you left did you leave because things were just getting too busy for you or was it because as it was becoming more commercial and moving towards the mainstream you know you, there was less interest for you in Kiss
2: yeah I mean it was it, it was a classic case of what happens to a significant amount of companies and artistic ventures is that they become very successful they get investors they get bought out and then they get changed and that i could see that that was happening to kiss we were originally we did 1am to 3am saturday night and um that was a good slot for us because you know it was sort of in those days quite a lot of people coming back or going out to clubs so you know in the car which is an important place for Mm. power station you know car listening was important so if you were broadcasting when people were actually moving about you 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 know it was a good slot so we had that slot for a long time and then they said oh we we want to move you and we were like oh okay you know we it was bound to happen so we're like okay move us it's fine if you move us can we don't you know can we do it all in our own studio and just send you the the data as it was in those days and they <laughs> agreed to that and then i think round about oh i can't remember now it would have been maybe 93 possibly they started to want a playlist and we're like no way right sorry that's not that's not
1: <laughs> no. I'm, I'm intrigued by that because they know what you've been doing also it's not like you're not having success either so you're you know you've got you've got some clout. So how does the conversation go when they want you to include certain tracks? It's
2: typical. The thing is that the people that aren't the DJs, who are actually very important to radio, who make up all the various bodies that make it go on air, sell all the advertising, do all those kind of things, there's a turnover of those people. So the station manager might not be the person that you grew up with on the pirates they may have moved on and got a better job somewhere else and this station manager's the third or fourth station manager since you started so that kind of emotional connection which can keep things glued together is no longer that strong a bond so it's easier for those people to go okay guys you know wonderful show do you think you could do like one in five from the playlist and we're like nope <laughs> <laughs> So we left and we actually got offered a gig on BBC London. So we started doing that and, you know, a similar thing happened there. Eventually
1: they wanted control. So you cut loose. So uh, I wanted to talk about something else. Uh, You mentioned it earlier, um, John, which is Network 21. And I was quite intrigued by that because it was a radio station, but it was also a pirate TV station. Is that right?
2: That's right. Whether they actually ever broadcast or not is an interesting <laughs> question. I don't know if they were mythical, whether they invented that side of things, or whether they did actually broadcast. But that was their intention, and you know, the, at that point, the DTI were, as I say, reasonably open-minded about para. But if you started buttoning in on the television frequency, man, you're Arse is going to be hauled off to jail so quick. Right, right. So I don't know if they ever managed to do it and whether that was just a very good marketing kind of trick, a Malcolm McLaren esque sort of right. situationist thing. The only
1: thing I could find about it, claim that apart from um, your involvement, was that Genesis Peorage of Psychic TV was involved. And I mean, I can the thought of him presenting a TV chat show is something
2: else. I was a massive fan of Throbbing Gristle, and I put a gig on actually. Uh, Uh, goldsmith's college and i've still got the flyer from that and i I, i've got rid of a lot of the stuff that i had of theirs because it was going for silly money and i just thought i've grown up i don't need that any longer but um their films that they used to show at their um, live gigs were extraordinary and you know they were quite the people who'd been and seen them and you could wait to see how many people would pass out there's a a classic one they showed of some you know they i think they made a lot of them themselves but it was in a sort of warehouse and it was some guy having his dick cut off but you can it was just sleight of hand you know and it was all sorts of nasty stuff like that but that's you know they did that to wind people up and but it was funny we used to see people pass out and we're like yeah there's another one (laughs) i think they'd have probably broadcast stuff like that which would have been amazing but wouldn't have lasted very long
1: yeah you can see why the dti might object i'm guessing it would be a lot more complicated anyway to uh have a television station broadcasting illegally right i mean i imagine just the amount of tech involved is probably massive isn't it
2: yeah, I think so. I mean, it was a lovely aspiration, but I really don't know if it, it 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 did actually take place. It is impossible, though. All those things are possible. And if you've got some crazy person behind it who's got the mouse and the income to be able to do that, it is possible. It really only became possible when the internet started. And obviously, we did a thing called Pirate TV. Well, Matt mainly did that. And so we, you know, we got involved in some Pirate TV when we could on the internet. But yeah, Network 21 was a fascinating station and, as I say, a precursor to NTS and Resonance in many respects.
1: You've got Kolkata Present Pirate TV. You're back doing that, right? You began that in um, 1998. I guess that's when the internet came along or made it made it possible. Um, and I, the internet hasn't killed pirate radio. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, you know, in Soho is one of them. You can have internet-based radio. Radio stations now it's kind of made it a lot easier for niche material and cultural material uh, to get broadcast without you know complications of that there used to be. But it's quite interesting is that there's still pirate stations, aren't there? You know, broadcasting on FM and on terrestrial things. And so it's still. Do you still listen? Yeah,
2: you know, I love going in the car. I mean, that's the thing I mentioned earlier. Until like the internet's really sorted in most people's car and you can just stream a pirate station effectively stream soho in your car or whatever which you know it's all becoming possible obviously there's a lot of people who are you know financially troubled who can't afford some all singing or dancing streaming car system (laughs) um so i think you know there's nothing better than a proper, like, you know, going down the beach and having a transistor radio on the beach and tuning in or wherever, you know, up a ladder, painting something, listening to the latest Jungle or Mm -hmm. stuff like that.
1: You can't beat that, you know, still. So it's still important. And there's still, you know, new, evolving kinds of music, mainly electronic music, right, that, uh, you know, that are getting their first outlet um, via that and building a listenership i suppose by that means and it's and then still feeding into the you know the 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 above ground culture right
2: yeah i'm sure you know it's what's so exciting about it i think it's a lot more difficult these days to be unknown or whatever you know and it's it is an industry now whereas before it was a vocational that's what i told myself but actually it became an industry (laughs) such. you know there's a lot of people who study how to do it now none of us really knew what we were doing then. We were just doing what we thought was the right way to do stuff. So I think when people are doing that, that's where you get the most amazing, interesting, Mm. new, cutting-edge stuff. They haven't been to college and studied, you know, how to make this, that, or the other. They're just doing it because it comes out of them, and they can't not do it.
1: So for you, I mean, you've got your monthly show on soho radio and all sorts of other things what are you up to now john what's next
2: you know we've just done at zero which is an ambient compilation Mm -hmm. which you know all the proceeds went to mental health charities and that was very well received which is lovely and um Matt's actually off to India for three months to do a bit of chilling out and getting his head around various stuff. I'm just going to have a break and sort out some stuff at home and have a pottering session for a little bit and then come back and do some. I'll still do the show. I want to get my records, more records digitised because a lot of stuff's on vinyl and I just want to get a lot of it digitised and generally, you know, do stuff like that. And then Matt and I are going to reconvene probably April. And think about what we're going to
1: do. Great stuff. Well, listen, let's come full circle. Let's get back to that subject of collecting. We didn't even get on your 19th century miniature ceramics. But um, in terms of your record collection, for all the, the crate diggers listening, what's it like? Can you describe it?
2: Well, it's in my studio. And, uh, you know, fortunately, well, it's, I've, out, I've burst out of my shelves. But I managed to get, like two walls pretty much completely kitted out with shelving built especially and it's all up there i mean it's an odd collection because it it you know i'm i have a properly eclectic taste so um and so and i've got like quite you know i'll buy weird electronic records i've got lots of music concrete and lots of funk records, lots of hip-hop records. It probably, for somebody else, they'd probably be able to kind of identify it. For me, it's just stuff that I love. And I know that I go off stuff as well. So, but what's so nice about having a big collection is you can go off it, leave it for a couple of years, and then suddenly rediscover it. <laughs>
1: but, um, and for the nerds, um, how have you organised? Is it all catalogued neatly with some <clears throat> complicated system or, or do you just know where everything is?
2: it's such a such a thing that I mean, I've always kept it in genre-ish sort of ways, but then I usually break any rules that I make. So you know it's Latin and and funk and soul and jazz, rock, punk. you know occasionally I break it down further to smaller genres. Sometimes I break the rules completely and just put all the records like that are on Sugar Hill mm. in mm. one section um and so that complicates the hip-hop section obviously but the sugar hill section is at the end of the hip-hop section so (laughs) but generally speaking at the moment because i've run out of room and i've got records coming out of my ears
1: are you okay with letting stuff go then or are you um are you are you a hoarder are you able to no no i'm gonna sell that stuff now
2: i'm i i am a hoarder i'm a posh hoarder really So I draw the line at paper bags, so I have got quite a few (laughs) record bags. Um, um, But I will, I I had a big old cull because I used to have like the DJ copy, the white label, the release copy. And so a few years ago, I had a massive cull and got rid of like, every you know, a bunch of stuff like that. And then compilations, I've got, I had a lot of compilations and... You know, once they became available digital, there's no point in carrying a album with one track that you like to a club, really. So a lot of those gone. But I, I struggle to get rid of stuff. You know And sometimes I let things go and then I regret it and I go and buy them <laughs> back again.
1: Yeah. If you got anything particularly strange, I don't mean strange music-wise, I'm sure you've got lots of strange music-wise, but in terms of records that are like uh, very odd strange records physically i mean i look i love i haven't got a record collection at all really but i I love odd things you know
2: yeah i've got a few i've got um i haven't got any x-ray records actually um that's one thing and i i didn't it was only after hearing about them that i realized they existed at the time even though i used to go and travel throughout the eastern Bloc when it was under the russians with my parents back in the day um, I've got kind of I've got some of the very earliest vinyl. I've got these uh, I think they're German. they look like six inch yeah. records yeah. and they almost look like they're made out of tar or something like that. <laughs> I've got a few of those. I've got a tiny little record that's probably only about that kind of mm, size yeah. like a t- one inch or a two inch ooh, but it's ooh. really thick. It's like a big old-fashioned penny. Um, I've got postcards that, you know, will play
1: and
2: lots of sexy
1: discs. You can combine your love of uh, brutalist buildings with um, musical postcards because I've got a couple of those actually with strange kind of 60s buildings on them. With uh, Just that they, when you play the music, it's always like some weird sort of orchestral waltz. Yeah. But I sort of gave up with those
2: because they were, you know, you could buy a lot of them. Mm. I used to go to Amsterdam quite a lot back in the 80s And they had amazing record shops there, and I bought shitloads of those type of records. Um, You know, I've got some Three Inches, I've got some other weird types. Like I said, I haven't got one of those ones that my grandfather had, which was a 78 that would play five different tunes
1: on one side. Which is amazing. Good. Well, listen, John, we have got to the end. I want to thank you uh, for coming back to the Bureau of Lost Culture to tell us about your life sailing the airwaves as a pirate. And um, I'm sure thinking back on it, it must have been a very exciting time, right? Oh, it was amazing.
2: Yeah. The thing is, when you're there and you're doing it, you you know, often you don't realise. I mean, you sort of know it's exciting, but you don't sometimes realise that, you know 30 odd years later you've made some sort of history even if it's only a minuscule thing it's kind of weird but it was just what we wanted to do and we were desperate to do it we wanted to party we wanted to have a good time we wanted to play interesting music and you know the racism of London clubs led also to that alternative scene so you know that was an important part of it and the and the fact that this was a bunch of people from all different backgrounds and races and creeds which was really important you know we'd argue and we'd fall out and all the rest of it but it was a truly interesting experience
1: Jonathan Moore thanks very much for coming to the Bureau of Lost Culture
2: brilliant thank you very much Stephen
1: Pirate John Moore, such good value. You can check out his show here on Soho Radio 2, and of course, all the other stuff that he does, I'll put links in the show notes. Thanks too to the piratearchive.net and amfm.org.uk. Great resources for some of the sounds that you heard and other stories and info about Kiss and the other pirates. We have one more show in our trilogy on Pirate Radio with Sarah Coleman and Lee Adams telling us their tales of daring do up in the Midlands, climbing up water towers, hiding from the police, all sorts of monkey business. Looking forward to that. Thank you to you for listening. Do come and join us at bureauoflostculture.com or leave us a review somewhere or tell your mum. She might find it interesting too. We will see you or hear you next time on the Bureau of Lost Culture. This episode was sponsored by the artist known as The Real Tuesday World www.tuesdaywell.com. And this is their track, I Awoke and Found I Was Dreaming. From their upcoming album, Dreams.